Chapter One of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Nelson. Key Out of Time. Chapter One Lotus World. There was a shading of rose in the pearl arch of sky, deepening at the horizon meeting of sea and air in a rainbow tint of cloud. The lazy swells of the ocean held the same soft color, darkened with crimson veins where spirals of weed drifted. A rose world bathed in soft sunlight, knowing only gentle winds, peace, and sloth. Ross Murdoch leaned forward over the edge of the rock ledge to peer down at a beach of fine sand, pale pink sand, with here and there a glitter of a crystalline shell. Or were those delicate fluted oval shells? Even the waves came in languidly, and the breeze which ruffled his hair, smoothed about his sun-browned, half-bare body, caressed it, did not buffet on its way inland to stir the growths which the Terran settlers called trees but which possessed long lacy fronds instead of true branches. Hawaika, named for the old Polynesian paradise, a world seemingly without flaw, except the subtle one of being too perfect, too welcoming, too wooing. Its long, uneventful, unchanging days enticed forgetfulness, offered a life without effort, except for the mystery because this world was not the one pictured on the tape which had brought the Terran settlement team here. A map, a directing guide, a description all in one, that was the ancient voyage tape. Ross himself had helped to loot a storehouse on an unknown planet for a cargo of such tapes. Once they had been the space navigation guides for a race or races who had ruled the star lanes ten thousand years in his own world's past a civilization which had long since sunk again into the dust of its beginning. Those tapes returned to Terra after their chance discovery, were studied, probed, deciphered by the best brains of his time, shared out by lot between already suspicious Terran powers, bringing into the exploration of space bitter rivalries and old hatreds. Such a tape had landed their ship on Hawaika a world of shallow seas and archipelagos instead of true continents. The settlement team had had all the knowledge contained on that tape crowded into them, only to discover that much they had learned from it was false. Of course, none of them had expected to discover here still the cities, the civilization the tape had projected as existing in that long-ago period. But no present island string they had visited approximated those on the maps they had seen, and so far they had not found any trace that any intelligent beings had walked, built, lived on these beautiful, slumberous atolls. So what had happened to the Hawaika of the tape? Ross's right hand rubbed across the ridged scars which disfigured his left one to be carried for the rest of his life as a mark of his meeting with the star voyagers in the past of his own world. He had deliberately seared his own flesh to break the mental control they had asserted. Then the battle had gone to him. But from it he had brought another scar, the unease of that old terror when Ross Murdoch, 
fighter, rebel, outlaw by the conventions of his own era, Ross Murdoch, who considered himself an exceedingly tough individual, that toughness steeled by the training for time-agent sorties, had come up against a power he did not understand, instinctively hated and feared. Now he breathed deeply of the wind, the smell of the sea, the sense of the land growths, strange but pleasant. So easy to relax, to drop into the soft, lulling swing of this world in which they had found no fault, no danger, no irritant. Yet once those others had been here, the blue-suited, hairless ones he called baldies. And what had happened then or afterward? A black head, brown shoulders, slender body broke the sleepy slip of the waves. A shimmering mass covered the face, capturing glitter-fire in the sun. Two hands free to chin, curved yet firmly set, a mouth made more for laughter than sternness, wide, dark eyes. Carrara Traherne of the Ali, the one-time Hawaiian god-chieftain line, was an exceedingly pretty girl. But Ross regarded her aloofly, with a coldness which bordered on hostility, as she flipped her mask into its pocket on top of the gill-pack. Below his rocky perch she came to a halt, her feet slightly apart in the sand, an impish twist to her lips as she called mockingly, "'Why not come in? The water's fine!' "'Perfect, like all the rest of this.' Some of his impatience came out in the sour tone. No luck as usual. As usual, Carrara conceded. If there ever was a civilization here, it's been gone so long, we'll probably never find any traces. Why don't you just pick out a good place to set up that time probe and try it blind? Ross scowled. Because, his patience was exaggerated to the point of insult, we have only one peep probe. Once it's set, we can't tear it down easily for transport somewhere else. So we want to be sure there's something to look at beyond." She began to wring the water out of her long hair. Well, as far as we've explored, nothing. Come yourself next time. Tino Rao and Tawa aren't particular. They like company. Putting two fingers to her mouth, Carrara whistled. Twin heads popped out of the water, facing the shore and her. Projecting noses, mouths with upturned corners so they curved in a lasting pleasant grin at the mammals on the shore, the dolphin pair, mammals whose ancestors had chosen the sea, whistled back in such close counterfeit of the girl's signal that they could be an echo of her call. Years earlier their species' intelligence had surprised, almost shocked men. Experiments, training, cooperation, had developed a tie which gave the water-limited race of mankind new eyes, ears, minds to see, evaluate, and report concerning an element in which the bipeds were not free. Hand in hand with that cooperation had gone other experiments. Just as the clumsy armored diving suits of the early twentieth century had allowed man to begin penetration into a weird new world, so had the frogman equipment made him still freer in the sea. And now the gill-pack, which separated the needed oxygen from the water, made even that lighter burden of tanks obsolete. But there remained depths to which man could not descend. 
whose secrets were closed to him. There the dolphins operated, in a partnership of minds, equal minds, though that last fact had been difficult for man to accept. Ross's irritation, unjustified as he knew it to be, did not rest on Tino Rao or Tawa. He enjoyed the hours when he buckled on Gilpack and took to the sea with those two ten-foot, black-and-silver escorts, sharing the action. But Carrara, Carrara's presence was a different matter altogether. The agent's teams had always been strictly masculine. Two men partnered for an interlocking of abilities and temperaments, going through training together, becoming two halves of a strong and efficient whole. Before being summarily recruited into the project, Ross had been a loner, living on the ragged edges of the law, an indigestible bit for the civilization which had become too ordered and adjusted to absorb his kind. But in the project he had discovered others like himself, men born out of time, too ruthless, too individualistic for their own age, but able to operate with ease in the dangerous paths of the time agents. And when the time-search for the wrecked alien ships had succeeded, and the first intact ship found, used, duplicated, the agents had come from forays into the past to be trained anew for travel to the stars. First there had been Ross Murdoch, criminal. Then there had been Ross Murdoch and Gordon Ash, time agents. Now there was still Ross and Gordon, and a quest as perilous as any they had known. Yet this time they had to depend upon Carrara and the Dolphins. Tomorrow, Ross was still not sorting out his thoughts, truly aware of the feeling which worked upon him as a thorn in the finger, I will come. Good. If she recognized his hostility for what it was, that did not bother her. Once more she whistled to the Dolphins, waved a casual farewell with one hand, and headed up the beach toward the base camp. Ross chose a more rugged path over the cliff. Suppose they did not find what they sought near here. Yet the old taped map suggested that this was approximately the site starred upon it. Marking a city, a starport? Ash had volunteered for Hawaika, demanded this job after the disastrous Topaz affair, when the team of Apache volunteers had been sent out too soon to counter what might have been a Red Sneak settlement. Ross was still unhappy over the ensuing months when only Major Kelgaris and maybe, in a lesser part, Ross had kept Gordon Ash in the project at all. That Topaz had been a failure was accepted when the settlement ship did not return, and that had added to Ash's sense of guilt for having recruited and partially trained the lost team. Among those dispatched over Ash's vehement protests had been Travis Fox, who had shared with Ash and Ross the first galactic flight in an age-old derelict spaceship. Travis Fox, the Apache archaeologist, had he ever reached Topaz? Or would he and his team wander forever between worlds? Did they set down on a planet where some inimical form of native life or a red settlement had awaited them? the very uncertainty of their fate continued to ride Ash. So he insisted on coming out with the second settlement team, the volunteers of Samoan and Hawaiian descent, to carry on a yet more exciting and hazardous exploration. 
Just as the project had probed into the past of Terra, so would Ash and Ross now attempt to discover what lay in the past of Hawaika, to see this world as it had been at the height of the galactic civilization, and so to learn what they could about their forerunners into space. And the mystery they had dropped into upon landing added to the necessity for that discovery or discoveries. Their probe, if fortune favored them, might become a gate through time. The installation was a vast improvement over these passage points they had first devised. Technical information had taken a vast leap forward after Terran engineers and scientists had had access to the tapes of the Stellar Empire. Adaptations and shortcuts developed, so that a new hybrid technology came into use, woven from the knowledge and experimentation of two civilizations thousands of years apart in time. If and when he or Ash, or Carrara and her dolphins, discovered the proper site, the two agents could set up their own equipment. Both Ross and Ash had had enough drill in the process. All they needed was the brick of discovery. Then they could build their wall. But they must find some remainder of the past, the smallest trace of ancient ruin upon which to center their peep probe. And since landing here the long days had flowed into weeks with no such discovery made. Ross crossed the ridge of rock that formed a coxcomb rise on the island's spine and descended to the village. As they had been trained, the Polynesian settlers adapted native products to their own heritage of building and tools. It was necessary that they live off the land, for their transport ship had had storage space only for a limited number of supplies and tools. After it took off to return home, they would be wholly on their own for several years. Their ship, a silvery ball, rested on a rock ledge, its pilot and crew having lingered to learn the results of Ash's search. Four days more, and they would have to lift off for home, even if the agent still had only negative results to report. That disappointment was driving Ash, the way that six months earlier his outrage and guilt feelings over the Topaz affair had driven him. Carrara's suggestion carried weight the longer Ross thought about it. With more swimmers hunting, there was just that much increased chance of turning up some clue. So far, the dolphins had not reported any dangerous native sea life, or any perils except the natural ones any diver always had at his shoulder under the waves. There were extra gill packs, and all of the settlers were good swimmers. An organized hunt ought to shake the Polynesians out of their present do-it-tomorrow attitude. As long as they had had definite work before them, the unloading of the ship, the building of the village, all the labors incidental to the establishing of this space, they had shown energy and enthusiasm. It was only during the last couple of weeks that the languor which appeared part of the atmosphere here had crept up on them, so that now they were content to live at a slower and lazier pace. Ross remembered Ash's comparison made the evening before, likening Hawaika to a legendary Terran island where the inhabitants lived a drugged existence, feeding upon the seeds of a native plant. Hawaika was fast becoming a lotus land for Terrans. Through here, then westward, Ash hunched over the crate table in the mat-walled house. He did not look up as Ross entered. 
Carrara's still damp head was bowed until those black locks, now sleek to a round skull, almost touched the man's close-cropped brown hair. They were both studying a map as if they saw not lines on paper, but the actual inlets and lagoons which that drawing represented. "'You are sure, Gordon, that this is the modern point to match the site on the tape?' The girl brushed back straying hair. Ash shrugged. There were tight brackets about his mouth which had not been there six months ago. He moved jerkily, not with the fluid grace of those old days, when he had faced the vast distance of time travel with unruffled calm and a self-confidence to steady and support the novice Ross. The general outline of these two islands could stand for the capes on this. He pulled a second map, this on transparent plastic to fit over the first. The capes marked on the much larger body of land did slip over the modern islands with a surprising fit. The once large island, shattered and broken, could have produced the groups of atolls and islets they now prospected. How long? Carrara mused aloud. And why? Ash shrugged. Ten thousand years? Five? Two? He shook his head. We have no idea. It's apparent that there must have been some worldwide cataclysm here to change the contours of the land masses so much. We may have to wait on a return spaceflight to bring a copter or a hydroplane to explore farther." His hand swept beyond the boundaries of the map to indicate the whole of Hawaika. "'A year, maybe two before we could hope for that,' Ross cut in. "'Then we'll have to depend on whether the Council believes this important enough.' The contrariness which spiked his tongue whenever Carrara was present made him say that without thinking. Then the twitch of Ash's lip brought home Ross's error. Gordon needed reassurance now, not a recitation of the various ways their mission could be doomed. "'Look here,' Ross came to the table, his hand sweeping past Carrara, as he used his forefinger for a pointer. "'We know that what we want could be easily overlooked, even with the dolphins helping us to check. This whole area's too big.' and you know that it is certain that whatever might be down there would be hidden with sea-growths. Suppose ten of us start out in a semicircle from about here and go as far as this point, heading inland. Video cameras here and here. Comb the whole sector inch by inch if we have to. After all, we have plenty of time and manpower." Carrara laughed softly. Manpower. Always manpower, Ross. But there is woman power, too, and we have perhaps even sharper sight. But this is a good idea, Gordon. Let me see." She began to tell off names on her fingers. Pakiki, Vioha, Hori, Lidiha, Tema, Ui, Honoura. They are the best in the water. Me, you, Gordon Ross. That makes ten with keen eyes to look and always there are Tino Rao and Tawa. We will take supplies and camp here on this island, which looks so much like a finger crooked to beckon. Yes, somehow that beckoning finger seems to me to promise better fortune. Shall we plan it so?" Some of the tight look was gone from Ash's face, and Ross relaxed. This was what Gordon needed. 
not to be sitting in here going over maps, reports, reworking over and over their scant leads. Ash had always been a field man, and the settlement work had been stultifying, a laborious chore for him. When Carrara had gone, Ross dropped down on the bunk against the side wall. What did happen here, do you think? Half was real interest in the mystery they had mulled over and over since they had landed on a Hawaika which diverged so greatly from the maps. The other half, a desire to keep Ash thinking on a subject removed from immediate worries. An atomic war? Could be. There are old radiation traces. But these aliens had, I'm sure, progressed beyond atomics. Suppose, just suppose, they could tamper with the weather, with the balance of the planet's crust. We don't know the extent of their powers, how they would use them. They had a colony here once, or there would have been no guide tape, and that is all we are sure of. Suppose, Ross rolled over on his stomach, pillowed his head on his arms, we could uncover some of that knowledge. The twitch was back at Ash's lips. That's the risk we have to run now. Risk? Would you give a child one of those hand weapons we found in the derelict? Naturally not, Ross snapped and then saw the point. You mean we aren't to be trusted? The answer was plain to read in Ash's expression. Then why this whole setup, this hunt for what might mean trouble? The old pinch, the bad one. What if the Reds discover something first? They drew some planets in the tape lottery, remember? It's a seesaw between us. We advance here, they there. We have to keep up the race or lose it. They must be combing their stellar colonies for a few answers just as furiously as we are. So we go into the past to hunt if we have to. Well, I think I could do without answers such as the Baldies would know. But I will admit that I would like to know what did happen here two, five, ten thousand years ago." Ash stood up and stretched. For the first time he smiled. "'Do you know I rather like the idea of fishing off Carrara's beckoning finger? Maybe she's right about that changing our luck.' Ross kept his face carefully expressionless as he got up to prepare their evening meal. End of chapter 1